Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers. Each winter, not every year, but many years, I spend some time in Burma, Myanmar, as it is called sometimes. And I've had an association and uh, love of that place for close to 20 years now, I realized just this evening. Time flies, the years pass. And I go there, I have spent time there doing my own practice, some periods living in the robes of a, of a ordained monk. And I work with some aid projects there, one in particular these days. And my, my image, the image that comes into my mind when I think of that country, and it's, you know, you have, I'll talk about it, and it's, it's, you have to realize you're seeing it through particular eyes. And uh, you know, Burma, greed, hatred, and delusion are alive and well there, as anywhere. But still, I have a certain way that I tend to look at that place. And the images that come to my mind, often, almost always, they include uh, the Buddhist nuns who live there. They seem to be an integral part of that landscape. And, and having had a long association with many of them, they are, are, have, and continue to be a source of real inspiration for me. Their, their grace and dignity and a kind of quiet, humble faith that they seem to embody. Really it's a beautiful and inspirational thing for me. Some friends of mine and I, uh, we have a project called Meta in Action there. And we raise money every year. And our, our work is um, really oriented around supporting very small nunneries. We support about 40 at last count. We're not their sole source of support, but we do every year. And uh, some of them are very, really small, like just two or three people. (laughs) And we began this project in 2007 after there was a very big cyclone, Nargis, that hit uh, that part of the world and uh, was devastating there. And many of these... Uh, Many of the people in poor parts of that country live in very simple bamboo shacks and they were blown down and blown far away. (laughs) And uh, so we started, uh, along with the abbot at uh, a monastery, uh, one of my teachers uh, began trying to uh, help people who were in great need at that time. And we focused uh, on, on these small nunneries in the area, in the neighborhood near to that uh, yekta there, the meditation center. And uh, so many of them were had taken in orphans. There were these two sisters who had finally finished all their duties and study, and they had made a, found a little place, and they had gone there to meditate. And then someone showed up with these, this group of little orphan girls, and they took them in, and it changed, changed the trajectory of their lives. <laughs> They weren't able to do what they intended to do. And it's so amazing over the years, we will give some money to a group and they will go back and they will have started a school in these poor neighborhoods where there aren't schools and the kids there would not go, would not learn to read and write and wouldn't go to school. because there's no government school in that place, some of these places. And they'll they they do that if they get anything it flows back out in such a a beautiful manifestation of this flowing way that generosity moves through in some places at least a few of the nunneries that that we support and that another project that I've also worked with called Metadana project we support three nunneries in the Sagaing Hills which is um, my favorite place that I know of in the world. 
and uh, one of them, one of those nunneries, uh, someone we know has been making a film um, about the, the life of the nuns there. I saw a clip of it recently. I was wishing I could show it to you. It's very beautiful. A couple of years ago, I was there with some of my friends, part of the Meta in Action group, and we had been, um, we were asked to go um, visit this one small nunnery that we'd never been to, and there was, they said, oh, there's a, there's a 102-year-old nun there. And um, we went to pay respects, and uh, she reminded me, Rebecca has mentioned the happy Sayadaw, happy monk, who died a couple of years ago at age 99, and he was such an inspiration to us. So light and so wise and so happy. And she she would throw her arms in the air like he did. She was very much like him. And she was tiny and, you know, at 102, she was shrinking <laughs> in many ways. But she had this light energy. And at one point, she had a long string of mala beads that people sometimes use. And... And uh, Carol Wilson is one of the, who taught part one, she's part of this group, and, and this nun whose name I, I could not find any, I couldn't remember, she lassoed Carol with her mala and pulled her in really close and said, go for Nibbana, go. <laughs> and, and then started laughing and threw her arms up in the air. <laughs> it, was so, it was wonderful to see Carol lassoed by a, 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 a very old <laughs> nun. And here at my MS a few years ago, it was my really good fortune to meet uh, a Sri Lankan nun named Bhikkhuni Kusuma. And she's fully ordained. So she's a Bhikkhuni in the, with the full, full ordination. And um, she's been a pioneer in the reestablishment of the Bhikkhuni lineage, which is, is starting to come back a bit here and there. And she's the first woman in Sri Lanka to take full ordination in uh, nearly 1,000 years, is my understanding. And uh, I remember meeting her here, and it was so wonderful to, to meet her. And she, she said at one point, she, she decided, if I have to give up my life in order to make this happen, I will do that. And she had done a lot of work. She has a, she has a master's and a PhD. And she had done a lot of travel to show how the lineage had not actually died out, but had been traveled across Asia and, and through into Korea. And um, it was wonderful to have a, that chance to uh, meet her. And, uh, and so this evening, I would like to dedicate this talk to uh, the Bhikkhuni lineage over the, so many years, and especially to those uh, in these days, who are um, who are um, pioneers in bringing that back, and to all who support that movement, and um, I was thinking of this when I was thinking about my talk tonight, and and thinking of these people. Um, to me, they exemplify the qualities of the sangha that are are chanted as daily in some of the monasteries and nunneries, most of them I think they chant the qualities of the Sangha, and I'm going to chant those now. I, some of you, I think, uh, will know this, and please join me if you do. I'm going to do it in Pali and in English, so you can hear, hear both of those. So this is just the, I've, I've taken this out of a longer chant. This is the reflection on the, on the uh, it's a reflection on the qualities, and it's a chant in praise of the Sangha. I'll do the little introduction and then go through this. It's pretty short. Andamayam sangha bituting karomase. Now let us chant in praise of the sangha. Yoso supati panno bhagavato savaka sangho. They are the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. Ujupatipanno bhagavato savaka sangho. 
who have practiced directly Nyaya Patipano Bhagavato Savaka Sangho, who have practiced insightfully Samichi Patipano Bhagavato Savaka Sangho, those who practice with integrity Yadidang Chatari Purisayugani Yata Purisapugala. That is the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, Esa Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. These are the blessed ones, disciples, Ahuneyo. Such ones are worthy of gifts, Pahuneyo, worthy of hospitality, Dakineyo, worthy of offerings, Anjali Karaniyo, worthy of respect, Anutarang Punyaketang Lokasa. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. History is really just that, a story. And stories may differ sometimes from facts. And much of the time, history is his story. But there are also her stories. And tonight I want to tell a few of those. In the Pali text, in that collection, In this tradition, there's a a group of verses called the Terigatta. And this uh, means literally verses of the elders, but Teri is female. So Terigatta is uh, verses of the female elders. There's also a Teragatta collection from the monks. And I love the poems of the Terigatta. They're very, seem simple and honest to me, and there's a quality there that they're coming straight from the heart. And these verses have the flavor often of a, a kind of enlightenment poem. Sometimes they're called enlightenment poems. And they recount the struggles and understandings, realizations that it came to these early nuns. And in reading these, we can see how they had the same challenges that we faced. In some cases in these, there are these beautiful descriptions of a moment of awakening. It's quite fantastic to read, read this, these descriptions. And um, there are different translations. There are some very ancient translations. Um, For tonight, for the poems that I'm reading, I've used a, a book called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott. And I really like her translations. And from the poems and also from stories in other places, mostly in the, in the Vinaya, the, the book of the rules, uh, the precepts, there are stories can be gathered um, about the lives of some of these women. And although they can seem uh, formulaic and, and kind of... Um, kind of take on a sort of um, fable-like quality. Um, there, there likely is a, at least some real kernel of truth in terms of the description of things there, some sense of what really these people were like. And, and so we can get stories about their lives and it can c- connect us to something that seems so distant in times and uh, makes it real and human, you know. They were people, and they were doing the same practice that we're doing now. They had the same teachings to draw on. And, um, and for me, it's an inspiring reminder of what's possible for any one of us. And we follow in their footsteps.
Once long ago, there was a town, perhaps it was a city, and it was called Kapilavattu, Kapilavastu in Sanskrit, in Pali, Kapilavattu. And some say that the place was named for a great hermit named Kapila, for the word Kapilavattu means uh, Kapila's ground or Kapila's place. There are few these days who have ever heard this name Kapila. And scholars and historians don't even agree where the place actually was. Some say here, some say there. But it is likely that it lay within uh, sight of the great Himalayas, at least in the distance. And we know some places that were near there. So we know more or less where it probably was. But at one time, that place Kabilavatu was a town or city. And it was the capital of a region that was ruled by a clan called the Sakya. Because in those days, in that part of what now is India, uh, the uh, system of governance was based on a clan system, an affiliation around clans. So there were numerous smaller uh, kingdoms, you could say, clandoms. And in this town of Kapilavattu, there lived a queen. She was wife to uh, the chieftain of this uh, clan of the Sakyans. Her name was Pajapati. And she and her sister Maya had been born into a neighboring clan, the Kolyas, Kolyan clan. And they grew up in the town of Devadaha, which was the capital of that area. And when they were young, they were both married as part of, uh, probably part of creating alliances. They were married to uh, this chieftain of the Sakyas, Sudodana was his name. And he was reigning there as the chief or the king king of that region. And so they moved to Kapilavattu. And Maya was the older of the two sisters. And when she was grown, she became pregnant as these things happen. And she wanted to travel to her parents' home in Devadaha at the time of giving birth. And while en route, she went into labor while stopped at a pleasant wayside, a garden area called the Lumbini Garden. And she, she went into labor there and she had a baby boy was born there under a rose apple tree, a flowering tree. And some seven days after this birth, Maya died. She died suddenly. And so the young baby was taken by his aunt, her sister Pajapati, and she raised him as her own first child. And then later he was joined by two children of her own his cousins, so he was raised by his aunt. And this baby boy was given the name Siddhartha, Siddhartha in Pali. And this word means one who accomplishes his aims. And probably most of us here have heard the name of Siddhartha. It's a name that is remembered now so many years later. Much has been written about him. He became a great sage and a teacher and was known as the Buddha, the awakened one. And it's said that after he left home on a spiritual quest that he returned there sometime after an awakening experience and enlightenment. About a year or so after that, he returned to his hometown of Kapilavattu and his foster mother, Pajapati, by now she was known as Maha Pajapati. Maha means great. Highly respected for her, her status in the community. And it's said that her foster son, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gotama, came there and he gave some teachings. And when she heard this, she realized uh, the first stage of enlightenment. She entered the stream of the Dhamma there. And some years later, when he again returned to that place, she asked permission uh, to enter into the uh, discipline and training 
of uh, those who were his followers and disciples, the renunciates. And with the help of the kindly Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and attendant, she was able to, uh, to receive permission. And the Buddha said, Ehi, Pajapati. Ananda said, Are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry, of once returning, of non-returning, of arhantship? Sometimes uh, talked about as four stages of enlightenment. And the Buddha said, Yes, Ananda, they are able. If women are able to realize the path and its fruit, and since Pajapati is your aunt and foster mother, when your own mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast and cared for you. It would be good if women would be allowed to enter into homelessness. And so the Buddha established the bhikkhuni order at that time. And after she became a nun and adopted the renunciate life, she uh, practiced, she was given more instruction, and she uh, eventually realized full awakening. And it's said that she lived to be 120 years old. Since I met that 102-year-old nun recently, I thought, yeah, maybe. Not impossible. So I'd like to read a poem of hers. This is from the Terigatta. And it speaks in praise of the Buddha, pays homage to him. She expresses gratitude to her sister Maya as his mother. And she speaks about her realization, uh, mostly in terms of the ending of the cycles of birth and death and rebirth. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All suffering is understood. The cause, the craving, is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. I love the line, look at the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. And I see this when I look out at all of you. Sincere effort. There are a number of poems in this collection in the Terigata that are by uh, disciples of Mahapajapati or people who were otherwise had a direct connection with her. I want to read a poem now uh, by uh, a nun named Vadesi. And she was among the very first group who ordained along with Mahapajapati. And she was from the, her hometown, from Devadaha. And she had been, she was older. She had uh, helped care for Pajapati when she was young. She'd been her, her nurse. Um, so I'd like to read a poem by Vadesi. <clears throat> it was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception of earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. 
I have great powers and I have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Twenty-five years. Hadn't had a moment's peace. That was her feeling. So we never know. All we do is we can put in a drop at a time. We don't know when things will open, when the heart will release, when the eye of the Dhamma will open in any one of us. The next uh, one of these uh, early bhikkhunis I want to tell a little story about and read a poem is, was named Patachara. And there's a, quite a detailed story about her life. And it parallels the story of uh, Deepama, who was a beloved teacher in more recent times, because she endured a great tragedy in her life before coming to practice. She um, she lost her children, her husband, and a series of really horrible events. And then after, shortly after this, losing the last of, of her, her immediate family, she was traveled to her family home in Savati and got there and was informed upon arrival that um, her parents and her brother had all perished in a terrible storm that had um, caused their dwelling to uh, be wrecked and, and catch on fire. And, and um, after this series of one tragedy after another, it said that she lost her mind with grief. And she began wandering around in circles, weeping and wailing and uh, tearing at her clothing. And uh, eventually her clothing is said to have become so ragged that it started to fall off altogether. So she was going around nearly naked and and the townspeople were frightened and they would try to drive her away. This was in Savati and the Buddha was, uh, at one point he was in residence at the Jetavana I spoke about in an earlier talk. And, um, and she, Patachara was wandering and she came there to where he was teaching and some of the people who were listening to him wanted to, to drive her away. And he said, no, let her come, because he sensed that she would be able to hear and understand. And he spoke to her and he said, sister, recover your presence of mind. And it said that uh, there was something in that time and that way that he spoke to her that um, she recovered her, her, sis, her, her sanity came back. She recovered her presence of mind. And a kindly man who was there gave her his outer robe to, to wear. And the Buddha listened as she recounted her tragic story. And he said to her, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the four oceans. And as he continued to as he continued to speak to her and offer a teaching, it's her, her grief subsided more and more. And it's said that by the end of the discourse, she had realized the first stage of awakening. Seemed to happen a lot back then. <laughs> and she requested to join the nun Sangha. And she eventually became known as foremost in study and understanding of the, the, the Vinaya, which is, as I said, the, the precepts that are quite extensive in, or have become slowly over time, they were added. And she became a very powerful figure in the nuns community, uh, very skilled and very charismatic. And she was revered as a teacher, many disciples. And there are many occasions where people referenced her in gratitude. I'll read just a few uh, quotes from other nuns who referred, uh, expressed gratitude to Patachara a nun named Chanda. Patachara guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. And there's a group of 30 nuns who uh, were um, students of hers, and they said, we have taken your advice and we will live our lives honoring you. And a nun named Uttama. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. It was Patachara. Patachara. 
And another patachara, this is patachara pankasta, said this about the first patachara. She pulled out the arrow that was hidden in my heart. I love that one. So I'll read her poem in a moment. It, it recount, recounts her, her difficulties and struggles in practice. And there's a beautiful description in her poem of uh, the moment of her realization. It's quite lovely. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it, took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. In this poem, there's this um, sequence that we sometimes find in our own practice in meditation hereabout where there's a period of uh, real effort and concentration and then a, a kind of relaxation, a letting go and, and a catalyst of some kind. In this case, it was the, the lamp going out, sparking a kind of breakthrough. You know, we, we think it, you know, sitting in meditation, but maybe it's gonna be when we turn out the lights or flush the toilet or scoop the oatmeal. <laughs> this uh, next story is um, is very well known. It's it has it does have a lot the flavor of a teaching fable, but it's quite a beautiful story. This is a nun named Kisa Gotami. She also was from the place Savati. Uh, the same uh, town where Patachara came from. And uh, it seems that she was quite possibly a, a distant cousin of the Buddha. The, the last name Gotami is the is same as Gotama. And uh, when she was uh, grown to uh, an age of, of getting married, she uh, wed the son of a well-to-do merchant there and moved in with his family. It was the custom to do that. And she apparently wasn't treated very well by her, her in-laws. But when she had its child, she gave birth to a son and, and was well-received at that time and was given a more honorable place in the household. And uh, perhaps as a result of that, she became especially uh, close to and attached to her young son because he, he represented her happiness and acceptance into the life there. And, uh, but very sadly, when he was just a toddler, he became ill and he died shortly after that. And, um, and she, she w- couldn't accept that he was dead. She convinced herself that he was just very sick and that if she could find the right medicine, that he would get well. And so taking the body of her child in her arms, she went through the village begging for help, went from house to house. And when people said, I told her, it's, it's too late, the child has died. She didn't, uh, she couldn't see it and she just went on to the next place. And finally someone sent her to see the Buddha who was staying again in the Jatavana park. And she went to him and asked him if he had any medicine, anything that could help her child. And he said, yes, I know of a medicine, but you must go get it yourself. And he sent her to go back to the town and he said, bring me a white mustard seed from any house where no one has died. 
And so she went off thinking that if she could bring the seed and bring it back, then he could somehow uh, convert it into a cure, a miraculous cure. And so she went around in the town and asking for the white mustard seed and very common spice, we find it still in many households in India. Many people had it. But when she asked if anyone had died in the house, in that household, the answer was always yes. There was not one household where they said no. The dead, she was told, are more numerous than the living. And after this, uh, going through all this, um, the truth came to her and she was able to accept that her son indeed had died. Little son, she said, I thought that death had happened to you alone, but it is not to you alone. It is common to all. And it said that carrying the body of her child in her arms, she, she brought him gently to a forested area and left him there, left the body there. And then she returned to the Buddha and he asked if she had brought a mustard seed. And she said, done, venerable sir, is the business of the mustard seed. And she asked if she could join the nuns community. And it's said that she was known for her um, asceticism, for um, being very uh, committed to the renunciate life. And she uh, also realized full awakening. And her, her poem is very long. I'm just going to read a few uh, stanzas from it that I thought um, really had kind of captured the flavor of the long poem. The sage looked at the world and said, with good friends, even a fool can be wise. Keep good company and wisdom grows. Those who keep good company can be freed from suffering. We have to understand suffering, the cause of it, its end and the eightfold way. These are the four noble truths. I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out and I have put the burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisagotami with a free mind has said this. There are a number of poems in the Terigata that are attributed to uh, women who were living as uh, wandering ascetics at the time that they met the Buddha, before they became nuns. They were uh, living a a wandering life as spiritual seekers. One of them was uh, named Mitakali, and she was living this kind of wandering life. And she uh, happened to show up at the place when the Buddha gave the Satipatthana discourse on the Satipatthana, this famous uh, teaching that we've referenced uh, throughout the retreat. That's our our most um, our basic uh, instructions for our meditation practice. And uh, it's they, somewhere it seems to there's an indication that before she in her earlier life she had a f- reputation for being cross, difficult, and self-centered. But apparently this changed after she heard this teaching and uh, joined the nuns community and she became known for her energy and diligence. And she too realized the path and its fruit to completion. And I wanna read her poem in part because it has another beautiful description of her moment of realization, uh, which came uh, through a deep insight into impermanence by meditating on the aggregates and the elements of the mind and the body. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way and my passions used me and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way 
a fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So again, just in this moment of of standing up, the mind was freed. There was a nun named Bada Kundalakesa, and she grew up in a family, well-to-do family in Rajagaha, Rajgir, which is the town that I spoke about uh, where, near to where the vulture peak was when I gave a talk on the life of the Buddha. And apparently she was very passionate and given to impulsive behaviors, even as a very young girl. And uh, one day she was looking out the window of the house and she saw a very handsome young man who had been convicted of robbery and was being uh, led away to um, be executed. And she persuaded her father to uh, get him released. He was a wealthy man of influence. And so he agreed to do this, her father, and bribed the guards and had the young man brought to the house. And um, eventually he apparently allowed them to get married. And he, he had hopes that the young man would change his ways. But apparently he became obsessed with his wife's, his wife's uh, jewels and fine things. And uh, he told her a story that he, he said he had made a promise to a certain mountain deity that if his life were somehow spared, he would uh, make a, an offering. And so he persuaded Bada. He said, let us go. Put on all of your finest things and led her to this place um, on this top of a cliff. And um, he got there, he demanded that she give him her jewelry and his intention seemed to be to throw her off the cliff. And she saw a way out. She begged him for one last embrace and while that was happening, she pushed him off the cliff. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she decided she didn't feel like she could go home. After this, so she entered an order of uh, Jains, the Svetambara Jains, and the Jain religion uh, was uh, was in was around uh, before the time of the Buddha, and they were maybe one of the very first uh, religions that had an order of nuns there. They had been around for quite a while, and and she was asked asked how she, what kind of renunciation, what level she wanted to take, and she decided to commit to the very uh, most ascetic practices. And part of the initiation for that is rather than shaving her head, her hair was pulled out. And um, it's said that when it grew back, it was really curly. And her name, Kundalakesa, means curly hair. And uh, she mastered the teachings and practices there, but she wasn't satisfied with that. And she uh, left the order and lived as a wanderer, uh, searching out different teachers and um, she had excellent knowledge of the texts and philosophies and memorized many things, really bright mind, uh, very skilled at um, debate, which was very popular. De- engaging in spiritual debate was a big deal back then, still is in some places. And, and so the, the custom was she would go to some place and she would put a stick in the ground and if anyone wanted to debate her, debate her they would knock the stick over. So she shows up in Savati and Sariputta, the Buddha's, uh, one of his chief disciples was there and, and he sent some kids to knock over uh, Bada's stick and they, they had a debate and um, apparently she asked her questions and he could answer them and then he asked one and she stumped her and uh, she asked him for the answer and he said, no, go see my teacher. And... Uh, she went to see the Buddha and he saw how bright and uh, her, her mind was and the depth of her understanding. And he, he gave her a teaching and she became fully enlightened. 
just then. It sounds so good. <laughs> and then he ordained her uh, by saying, Ehi Bada, Kam Bada. And it's the only time besides with um, Mahapajapati recorded where he ordained someone in this way, where he said, come, right now. Um, and it seems that even after she became a part of the, the Sangha, the nun Sangha, that she uh, still lived a wandering life. So I'll read her poem. It talks about her ascetic life and her meeting with the Buddha and, and then her life wandering as an alms mendicant. I cut my hair and wore the dust and wandered in my one robe, finding fault where there was none and finding no fault where there was. Then I came from my rest one day at Vulture Peak and saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee, paid homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Bada, he said, and that was my ordination. I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Vajji, Kasi, Kosala, 55 years with no debt. I have enjoyed the alms of these kingdoms. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to Bada, who is free from all bonds. So a last poem from the Terigata. This one was, uh, is a nun whose name was Sukha. And the Sukha is not, um, it's a different spelling. It sounds very much the same as, as the word Sukha that means happy, happy contentment. But this one is uh, Sukha and it means bright or shining or lustrous. And uh, she uh, grew up also in the Rajagaha and the Buddha taught there quite a lot. And she heard him speak when she was quite young and she became a a lay disciple of his when she was quite little. And then when she was old enough, she joined the nuns and uh, practiced very diligently, realized Nibbana very quickly. And she became a very skilled and very inspiring speaker and teacher. She had a lot of her own students and a lot of disciples. And it's said that one day after she was She'd been out on alms round in the, in the town and she came back and started to uh, deliver uh, teaching, started to speak. And it uh, was so beautiful that everyone became enchanted. And, and even a tree that was growing nearby was so enchanted and inspired that it uprooted itself and went striding about the town, <laughs> praising, uh, praising Sukha. So this is actually a, a tree's poem about her. <laughs> What has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching the Buddha's teaching. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body for it is your last. So I'll end with a a more modern poem in this same same style or same kind. This is um, a poem, not a poem, it's a verse, it's some words from uh, Mei-Chi Gao. And I read uh, um, something from her in an earlier talk. She lived from 1901 to 1991 in Thailand and she was um, regarded as being fully enlightened nun. And um, this is not uh, not a poem in the same way, but it's uh, kind of the second part of the quotation I read earlier. In a perfectly still, 
crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So we can sit quietly together for a minute or two and let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.